You really wrote an essay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. A whole essay. Well, not an essay. I, I just wrote down a lot of stuff because I love, I love the movie we're doing today. You really love it that much. I I love it. You I'm loved Interstellar, too. And we should do that at some point, too. Okay. So we can talk about the science of Matthew McConaughey's tears? And his abs. Okay, fine. We'll do that. And his butt. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cinetific Institute. I am podcast professor Jason Harding. And I am podcast professor Atticus Blake. And on this show, we take the science in popular movies and see if it lives up to scientific inquiry. And what movie are we going to be examining this time around, professor? This time around, we are doing 2017's Arrival, directed by none other than Dennis Bellevue. What else has he done? I don't know. What else has that guy done? He did Blade Runner 2049. He is doing the new upcoming Dune. He Two other movies I guess we're going to have to do. Fucking fantastic. <laughs> He's he good. makes real pretty boring movies. I mean, I, I mean, he makes really... You shut your whore mouth. <laughs> you shut your fucking whore mouth. He makes science fiction movies, but it's got fifis in it. All chock full of feelings, right? Don't make me bring back the traveling... This brotherhood of the traveling uh, uh, fifi. <laughs> All right, yay! So we're going to be doing stuff about language and how maybe it can fuck up your brain so you can travel through time. And also, uh, what's powering that ship? And uh, how do they have gravity in there? And uh, are those aliens feasible? And a bunch of other stuff, right? Yeah, why not? Cool! But first, there's a segment that we have to do. You know, we like to think that we're pretty smart. Right, Professor Blake? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like Let's to. Let's just go. We're cutting. We're cutting directly to the segment. No, you're not. Come on. We were fucking wrong. We invite anyone who finds problems with the shit that we say on this show to please write in and correct us or provide us with more information on the topic if you think we've missed something. And so we take the comments that are left on our show on SoundCloud, and this is where we give them a good airing, right? Yes, like dirty laundry. Or clean laundry if you want to dry it. Or, or if you, yeah, if you want to give your shirt that not armpit smell, just hang it on the clothesline <laughs> if those exist anymore. And I have one. Catch a little coronavirus in the yeah. Winds. Have it filter the coronavirus through the air. Anyway, so who who our last show, the last show uh, that we did was uh, Contagion. Yes, lovely about, piece of work. That's right. We got to. We had our friend microblogonism on. Yeah, that was yeah, a good time. That was a good time. And okay. since we had our friend microblogonism on, he didn't leave any comments on this one, and that's probably why our comment section wasn't nine hundred pages Actually, long. He did, but he left comments on his own statements because he was correcting oh himself. So I guess that would count as we were fucking wrong because yeah. he himself was saying he was fucking wrong not okay. really though so what so, do people have um, to chime in with uh he said i somehow forgot about cryogenic electron microscopy which is another way of getting the mo- most uh, almost atomic resolution structural data which is true i actually looked it up after he wrote this the images but, are pretty stunning when you look at it through there this was uh micro yes that was microbloganism and is that um, how we got the picture of the current uh covid19 uh i do not know that but okay. i did see some very wonderful um Hex, uh, I'm sorry, benzene rings, which is something mm. you, if you do organic chemistry, you will draw 
tons of these fucking things. It is a six-sided figure uh, of uh, six six ca- uh, six carbon atoms, which is uh-huh. a, a thing that you will see in nature all the time. Um, hmm. And uh, if you it, we so up until up until I don't I think we did see it before this particular technology he's talking about. Right. However, this one made it nice and pretty because before it was just hypothesis. I mean, not hypothesized, but demonstrated by the math right. and by other other resolution micro microscopes that this is the way it would look. This is how it acts. We can prove it because of the experiments that we do. But then when we see it, it's like, ha ha ha, we're right. <laughs> so anyway. Yay. Um, uh, so, and uh, Francois Lacombe says, he said this to me in reference to the fact of uh, hybridizing animals based on their chromosome number. Uh, yeah. And again, I looked this one up too. He is he is right, but he was he was pointing out something different. He was saying it's, it is possible to hybridize animals with different numbers of chromosomes. Zebras and horses, for instance, which uh, creates a uh, which creates a mule, I believe. Right. Um, not, a, not a mule, but a type, not an actual mule, but a type an of animal. Infertile crossbreed yeah uh, humans and chimps will not hybridize however they have diverged and will and uh, from each other too long ago and they are too many genetic different there are too many genetic differences between them to which I commented yes I've um, I've told Jason about pre and post zygotic separation before the words just wouldn't come to me right then which is true uh, mm-hmm. that's what that's called there are pre and post zygotic uh, forms of separation uh, that keep uh, uh, us from hybridizing with chimpanzees. Right. So let me see. Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, not really many. We were effing wrongs. Let me see. Oh, we have. Uh, yeah, no. See, it, none of these are actually we were effing wrongs. They're, They're more just like, hey, let's just, let me just Yay. add a little tidbit. Um, uh, I th- four weeks ago, I think I I think I mentioned uh, that. Uh, um, so he. Be- I don't know why I I commented on this, but I commented that four weeks ago at the beginning of the coronavirus uh, outbreak shutdown, Someone decided to light a a uh, wood a saw and wood mill on fire in our town. <laughs> I'm just putting this in here because it's in the comments section. Right. I was driving away. I was uh, and I was looking at the comments as Jason posted this, and mm. and there was just a fucking blaze in the middle of our sleepy little town, right. just going to the sky like a like a pillar of fire. So I put it on there, and Francois Lacombe was like, why, or does the question even apply? And I said they were bored, and they burned down an entire logging company. (laughs) Other than that, um, Uh uh, let me see. The grief process delay. This is by Cassandra Brockett. Uh, The grief process delay for Matt Damon sounds like an example of disassociation, not a pathological level, but as a normative response to sudden, unexpected, emotionally charged stimuli. Uh, yes, yes, which is actually true. Um, his when he responds to the fact that his his uh, his uh, wife has passed away by saying, right. "Can I talk to her?" Yeah, like that's a that's a normal. He's still response. acting like she's alive, like he yep. didn't comprehend what he had, what the doctor had told him. Yeah, but why would you want to know that your wife Gwyneth Paltrow is still alive? Is she dead? Can I see her body so I know it's over? <laughs> I have to know for sure. I'm tired of her selling candles scented with her v- vagina. Well, this is her brain I'm holding in her in your my hands right now. I mean. If I it's if I eat it, enough. will I become? <laughs> will she become a part of me? You will become her. Do you want that? Absolutely. Yeah. No. no. So really, we didn't have any corrections. We're, we were pretty not, smart. Not really. No. Not really. Really. It helps when we have someone who actually knows his shit on the show. Mm. I know. That's why I wanted him on. <laughs> Yay! Okay, so now let's tear apart Arrival. 
Do you have All anything right. to say about the movie Arrival before we begin? I fucking love this movie. I love this movie. I think it's beautifully shot. I, I think if it's you haven't, written. if you haven't seen Arrival, a spaceship comes to Earth. A bunch of them, right? Or is it just one? I can't remember. It's it it's kind of like several, Independence Day. Several and, ships, and they send some people in, and one of those people is a, is a linguistics expert who is told learn how to talk to them, and in the it's process, that easy. Of, <laughs> right in the process of learning how to talk to them. Her brain changes, and she has the ability to do what? She has the ability to see time the same way that the octopoids do. The octopoids are the alien things. Which part of this did you want to start with? (laughs) Let's start with some of the simpler stuff first. Okay. Some, I, okay. I, oh, heptopoids. I'm sorry. Heptopods. He- heptopods. Right. Yes. And they're like big, squiddy things. They live in their own atmosphere, and and we don't really get a really good look at them. So right. as as okay, we look at the fandom and the artwork for the movie produced by the film company. What yeah. you are actually seeing is the bot is the bottom one quarter of the animal. There is actually a towering figure above that that looks much like a human being shrouded in in black plastic. What? Really? Yes. I'll send Jason a picture of this, but everybody, if you can go to uh, Aliens Fandom, uh, aliens.fandom.com slash wiki slash heptapod, it will show you the photo, uh, the drawing, I mean, the artwork. Okay. Um, So on there, it says, by the biology, as the name suggests, a heptapod has seven limbs whose arrangement makes the life form uh, heptoradially symmetrical. On Earth, they never leave the confines of their spaceships, perhaps due to them being unable to breathe Earth's atmosphere and instead leave it to the humans to uh, initiate first contact. Right. Um, They they have jointed arthropod-like limbs, each ending in a point that can split into seven-pointed starfish-like hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, when walking, they appear to put five limbs ahead and remaining two behind as they move. They have a dull gray, fleshy-looking skin with a rough texture, and they seem to have no visible eyes or mouths. However, mm-hmm. several orifices are visible on Costello's upper body, which is a name that they give one of the uh, heptopods. Right. Um, and their physical, this physique seems to vary noticeably among individuals, as Costello is chubbier than Abbott, which is one of the reasons that they named him. Why they that. named him that, right? Yes. Okay, so we don't know anything about them from the movie, right? I don't think they go into because we don't really collect, they don't really get a chance to collect samples. We don't know if they have DNA. We assume they do because they're organic creatures, as near as we can tell, right? Yep. We're we're assuming that they are, uh, you know, carbon based, probably not silicon based creatures, but we don't know that either. But from the way they're presented in the movie, and I'm going to kind of ignore that the fact that there's a big man wrapped in wrapped in plastic hanging above them, they look like feasible creatures right yes they very much do just like uh it it is it is very it is very so let me see how tall it says they are they're pretty big so it's stand they but not what you're like i said what you're looking at is the bottom quarter Mm -hmm. of the being how about i how about i maybe i should can i share this picture with you or not no i don't it's okay i have it here um so it it appears to be about about six average humans tall, <laughs> <laughs> which again is is completely feasible. Uh, and it what it appears that they live in in a very gaseous environment. They actually explain what they live that what they live in is a um, 
a very thick, cloudy. It, it, it contained. Did it contain ammonia? I can't remember what they said. Uh, they said it lived in what the environment was. Mm. But they actually had to change the atmosphere so that the humans could go inside of their spaceship and talk to them. Right. Right. So what Addy is trying to describe, um, basically, I can see where he's getting the idea that it looks like a very large humanoid um, shaped creature up at the top. It kind of looks like the upper torso and limbs and head and a very thick neck. Um, but it also could be the, it, it kind of looks to me like the rear of a large squid, right? The large body of the squid, the head basically of, of a squid or a cuttlefish. It's just got a very, very suggestive shape that suggests that it looks a little humanoid, but um, it's much bigger than what we see the majority of which in the movie, which appears to be a massive limb that tailors down, right? Yes. And, and uh, this also speaks to the brilliance of the film maker, mm-hmm. which is that he does the same thing that um, the director of 2001 does, uh, which is, <laughs> I'm forgetting because I'm a stupid fucking asshole and he's a great director too. God damn it. Jason <laughs> Of <Sabin>. 2001? <laughs> Stanley Kubrick? The Shining. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, so Mis- what you Mr. see Stanley when you Kubrick? go, yeah. what you see when you go when they go into the ship is what appears to be a movie screen size uh, opening, which is what uh-huh. the two the two limbs appear in, dangling yeah. almost like puppets. Yeah. Um. And again, I think that that's that's another. Uh, a, it's a it's a link sort of to uh, the the allegory of uh, Plato's cave, but they're also seeing it on their own movie screen while we're watching it on a movie screen. On a just movie like screen, it's very clever cinematically. It's very clever. Yeah. Um, but if this is accurate, if this is what the, the if this is concept art for the movie, and this is what they were going with, then uh, to me it kind of looks a bit like a cephalopod. You know, a mm-hmm. a large, um, more than likely soft-bodied creature, maybe. But I mean, its lower limbs are. It, it doesn't have tentacles. It has segmented fingers, which means that it has an in, more than likely it has an internal, um, it doesn't seem to have any carapace like an insect. Um, you know, it seemed, it appears to have skin. It appears to have a skeletal structure in these hands, that uh, which is the only part that we actually see. Um, and that it kind of looks like a big hand just walking around on the ground, a seven-fingered hand. And then at the tip of each one of those hands is like uh, uh, fingers that open up, uh, kind of like a, a star-nosed mole, right? Mm-hmm. It has this kind of opening that they can use to manipulate and write with, right? Mm-hmm. And they squirt a, a an uh, ink-like substance out of their hands mm-hmm. that will form what is known as uh, I wrote it down here this is known as a logogram which they mentioned right. several times in the movie uh, logogram uh, examples of logograms would be uh, Japanese and Chinese and Korean language mm-hmm. uh, it's meant to convey a a an entire uh, idea rather mm-hmm. than uh, a single words or single letters for each for, for each word and then a word conveys a smaller idea a logogram tries to uh, convey a large idea and it can and it can convey several different ideas mm. just just from one image. Right. So it's more like um I can't I can't remember. Is it ink? Are they writing directly onto the barrier or are they are these it things that are like floating? It looks like it's splashing the against the barrier. And each one of these logograms looks like a splash of ink in a circle. 
And sometimes the circles are full circles. Sometimes they're crescent moon circles. But mm-hmm. they look like a like like somebody dropped ink onto onto a piece of paper and then blew it along. But it always yeah. formed an almost uh, an almost circle. And right. each splatter, each, re- each representation of each movement of each splatter represents mm-hmm. a different idea. Just picture a really messy coffee stain. Yes, a black ink coffee stain. And I'm the writer. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, from what I can tell and from what what we're allowed to know about these creatures is that they seem feasible. They're huge. They're completely alien. But we can't really speculate on what they eat, how they breathe, or anything like that because the movie isn't focused on this particular thing about them. The, mm-hmm. the primary focus of the movie is our main heroes, which is the... the Jeremy Renner and... and Jeremy. Um... Oop, the other actor slips my mind, but that's Amy not what Adams. we're here for. So Amy Adams, a- a- yes. Amy Adams to communicate with them, right? Because it's not like these aliens show up and they've already uh, translated our language and we have open communication with them. No, um, in these fact, creatures, we have to teach them our language in, in the film. And we have to learn theirs. Right? And they not only learn English, but they learn every single other language on the planet. Well, a major language on the planet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Which means they're extraordinary ordinarily intelligent yes if well they also brain... travel through space and time so <laughs> yeah but we don't know how they did that either because we're gonna need to talk about the ship in a second um yeah, which is here on and you're the... like wait the, the alien isn't the big enchilada no the alien is not the big enchilada no the big enchilada is is their their theory of time yeah and we'll get I'm to that so easy to talk about <laughs> fucking love it Let's talk a little bit about the ships. Their ships kind of look like... um, Coffee beans. Blood cell... uh, People who have sickle cell anemia would recognize these ships. (laughs) Yes. Misshapen coffee beans. Yeah. There doesn't seem to appear to be any propulsion system. There's Uh, there's a description on that same fandom. Did you want to read it? Yeah. I I don't have the fandom here. What does it say? Oh, all right. Uh, So the technology says uh, heptapods are more capable than humans when it comes to space flight. When they make first contact with humanity, they use radio to transmit their vocal recordings. Um, uh, heptapod ships referred to as shells are 450 meter tall vehicles composed of a black stone-like material of unknown composition. Mm-hmm. The shells are oval and somewhat flattened in shape, resembling an immense obsidian concave lens. Right. They completely lack any surface features. There are no visible thrusters or steering mechanisms, nor are there any admissions right. whatsoever detectable from these shells. There is, however, a small vertical corridor leading into a transparent glass wall through which the humans communicate with the heptapods. So there's your glass right. wall that you were asking about. The interior of the ship is made of a white glass-like material uh, with a serrated structure. The inner the inner atmosphere, presumably atmospheric conditions found on the heptapods' homeworld, is thick and misty and is dense enough to have the properties between a liquid and a gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, though this medium, in this medium, the heptapods can fly through the air and the project their inky loco logograms within the mist. Mm-hmm. Louise is available is, al- is able to survive for several minutes in the heptapods' environment. That's true, uh, too. The ship is also uh, able to send out a small 12-foot cigar-shaped craft which emerges from an unknown opening. Costello uses this craft to bring Louise into the ship. When departing mm-hmm. from a planet surface shells do not actually move away from it instead they gradually become transparent and vanish completely right uh. so 
So let's let's start with anti Let's talk about gravity technology. Okay? Mm-hmm. What's gravity, Jason? <laughs> oh Jesus! Why don't you just? Oh my God! You mean one of the hardest answers not, to provide really, in physics? Actually. Again, I've been trying to. I I've been to, I I've been for my for my own personal knowledge. I I've actually looked this up, and there are the easy basics, ways to explain it. Right? Uh, is this the, uh, the gravity is an interaction between a massive object? and four-dimensional right. space-time. So the third dimension. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you want me to go into dimensions and how those work? And then... Mm, uh, let's and then, just talk about gravity. So what is happening with gravity is that when you have a massive object, it warps that four-dimensional space so that it appears as a sort of net around a three-dimensional object. And where those mm-hmm. curves occur in an object that's usually spherical, like a planet, mm-hmm. that is the direction which an object that is coming towards it will fall. So right. um, what is what is happening with, say, the moon is that it is constantly falling into the Earth's gravity well, but moving too fast to be caught in it and fall back down to the and Earth. fall back, yeah. It's, in uh, fact, very, it's pulling away from us very gradually. Very slowly, about an inch a year, as I, as I recall. And what's happening is you are seeing that interaction happen as it's sort of, uh, if you picture a bed sheet under, under the planet Earth, that curvature, mm-hmm. it, and if you were able to pull it taut enough and have a, a like a bowling ball in the middle and you throw a marble at a specific point, it will fa- probably, until it falls into the middle, which the moon won't yeah. do, and just so people don't worry. Uh, I mean, it, it, if, something, <laughs> if something massive were to pass through our, our solar system, like a, well, not even massive, but a small black hole were to just pass by, yeah, it could do that, but mm-hmm. hopefully that'll never happen. What you're seeing right. is that interaction between the bed sheet, which would be space-time, mm-hmm. and the massive object, which would be the bowling ball. Right. Yeah. Basically, gravity is dictated by the mass of an object. Not by its size, but by its mass. In the center of a black hole is a hyperdense collapsed star. Which means that all of that mass of the giant star has now collapsed into something very tiny, and is and gra- and that's what's causing the gravity well of that black hole to start sucking in everything around it. Right? Mm-hmm. It be- it becomes inescapable. Um, in order for us to be able to have artificial gravity, we would need something that pulls with Earth-like gravity that basically imitates the mass mm-hmm. of the Earth. And now, you do the thing see this is, in a lot of uh, in a lot of movies, just like yeah. in. Um... 2001 Star, Trek, Star Wars 2001 2001 okay so the That's artificial the type gravi- of, yeah yeah go ahead the the type of artificial gravity that they have it shouldn't really be called gravity centrifugal really. force but it's centrifugal force yeah um just like for example if you just want to do a simple experiment put some water in a bucket tie a string to the handle of the bucket and start swinging you know get get enough speed up ready to go and as you're spinning that bu- uh, that bucket at the end of the string the water will not come out of that bucket because it's now pushed up against the bottom of the bucket due to centrifugal force i did it right? with gasoline sorry <laughs> <laughs> Or if you go to the carnival, you know the uh, there's a big. It looks like a roulette wheel, and you get in it, and you and you 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 get up against the side of it, and that thing starts spinning, mm-hmm. and you're like, hey, there's nothing here from there's nothing locking me into place, but you get pushed up against the walls as it spins, and then it can lift up, and you're going upside down and sideways, and you don't have to worry about you know falling because 
centrifugal force is now pinning you to the sides. That's the type of artificial gravity that we see in the space station in 2001. The type of artificial gravity that we see here in Arrival seems to be the same type of artificial gravity that you have in Star Wars and Star Trek. It's mm-hmm. not really explained. They just say, oh, mm-hmm. all the artificial gravity's out. And it's like, Bleh? well, yep. okay. So in order to have it, they have to have some sort of system that pulls um, matter in a, whatever direction they choose to pull it, right? Some sort of force is acting upon the people walking around the ship, everything else that's in the ship that's sitting on top of, you know, all of that potential, you know, kinetic energy. But, you know, you put a book down on top of a desk and it falls off. It's going to fall down. That's because you have artificial gravity on. And I don't think anyone has ever come up with even a working theoretical anti-gravity or or, or gra- artificial gravity machine. Have However, I? it could be explained if you understand uh, time the way that they want you to in the film, which I would have to uh, do with a later, would, a later area. But how would time affect how gravity acts, not only with the ship hovering above the ground and moving around, because it just kind of hovers above the ground and never actually lands, mm-hmm. but also how gravity is acting within the ship itself. Now, so this would this would come back to the idea of um, understanding time. Like I said, uh, and I I don't actually have an explanation for it because if I had it, I would be the richest fucking yeah. person on earth. Yes, you but, would. However, and you'd have a um, Nobel Prize, and you wouldn't be doing this show. It would go back to another MacGuffin that we can do- and we can talk about in in the film, which is okay. their understanding of time. Okay, does it directly link to their use of the way they can utilize gravity on their ship? I believe so. So if we put it this way, okay, so. Uh, um, explaining the the five dimensions, right? The if you think mm-hmm. of fi- five dimensions, if they if they are like uh, what we call what they called in Interstellar the five dimensional beings, they just said, oh, if they're mm-hmm. five dimensional beings, well, let's just say these creatures are five dimensional beings, which is why they understand time so much differently than we do. At okay. least until after they give us our language, their language. Right. 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 So if you think of five dimensions, so if you you have a point, it's a dimension with no freedom of movement. However, it mm-hmm. is a dimension. Um, if you double those points, there's like le- there's a uh, length, which is two, right. which is a two point coordinate system. It can move right. along any it, whatever it is can move along these two points. But if it you has double, no depth. It has no depth. So you double those points, you get four. So that mm-hmm. is uh, length and width, right? So then you double those, and you get you get length, width, and depth, which is eight points. That is three dimensional mm-hmm. space. Okay. Um, which objects can then exist in, right? Mm-hmm. So if you double those points, the degrees of freedom and movement between those three dimensions is is now 16. So if you have two cubes and they are connected by lines that connect to all all 16 uh, all eight eight to eight points, you mm. have degrees of movement. So a and a, then a three-dimensional object can move from one area of the four of the of the of one four-dimensional area of space to another, which would equal the passage of time. Okay. Now, when you have a massive object that's near that it bends towards it because it is bending those 16 points mm-hmm. you see what i'm saying right. so that allows for the thermodynamic arrow of time which we see which moves forward in one direction mm-hmm. we can't we i don't know somebody else can tell me whether or not we viewed this backwards but we we haven't it's only moves mm-hmm. in a certain direction you have a cup of coffee on the counter as stephen hawking explains it, if you knock it if a cat knocks it off the counter the, it shatters into a million pieces the coffee's on the floor you don't normally right. see the thing reform and then land back back onto the table. Right. However, if you double those point 
those degrees of freedom, you then have 32 points. So not mm. only can you move from one area of one four dimension, uh, one area of four dimensional space to another, but you can move backwards from, or you can move from one to another and then back to the beginning and okay. then backwards through all of them. Um, okay. So then that would move on to the two theories of time, which people have constructed for a, it's a metaphysical argument, right? Right. So you're getting, are you getting bored with my essay? I'm sorry. No, no, keep okay. going. So if you can, so, well, let's, let's first answer this question. If you were able to move backwards in time at any point and right. move and between any of those points of freedom, mm -hmm. gravity would still interact with things, but you would probably understand it a lot better, which is why we believe that if you were to, if we were to enter a black hole from a certain, from a certain angle, a certain trajectory, mm -hmm. you might end up in a different, in a, well, I don't know, it's hypothesized a different universe or something like that. That's what's but hypothesized. Yeah. We would probably probably understand gravity a lot better than we do right now but in in speaking of terms of in terms of five-dimensional space mm -hmm. you would un, you would probably understand that interaction from all from all 32 points of the five-dimensional space okay right and then you would be able to utilize gravity the way you you would be able to manipulate gravity possibly because I think there's a big difference between traveling through and manipulation of. So, for example, let's say that I can travel forward and back in time, right? Mm -hmm. That's an ability. That's something I can do. I can travel forward. I can travel back. How? I don't know, right? Mm -hmm. These We're making the assumption that these are fifth dimensional creatures, right? Mm -hmm. But the assumption is, of course, being that just like any other creature, they evolved from, you know, uh, single-celled organisms on whatever homeworld planet they came from. They gradually developed over time. And then eventually either evolved or techno or their technology reached a point in which they... Okay, because we're now entering into it <laughs> at this point. Mm -hmm. Is their ability to travel back and forth through time and manipulate, and in your theory, manipulate gravity? part of their evolution or was it something that they they reached a technological milestone that allows them to do it i would say it's Is a technological it... milestone because what they do to the humans in the movie it is they it's not just implied but they say we're helping you because in 3000 years you help us right that's what they say okay so then that moves on to the a and the b theories of time mhm mm okay so in the a theory of time it's linear moving in one direction like i just explained mm -hmm. past present and future um, but in the b theory of time time is everywhere equaling existing always so if you put it this way the past is actually and this is somebody else saying this I, I just I'm, I'm, and I, I just made it simpler. The past is mm -hmm. actually right here. Stuff just gets moved around. Mm -hmm. And because we because of our forward motion through time, you can't then go back and take that coffee cup and put it back on the table re fully assembled with a coffee cup in it. However, right. in the B, B theory of time, uh, all events of the past, present and future uh, um, are not at the same time. But the divis I'm, uh, I'm sorry, in the A theory, the divisibility of time makes it a gradient or a continual transformation which I said in the mm -hmm. the um, four-dimensional uh, four space, the ability to move from one area of space to another over the course of a period of time. So this would be this would be like the um, Kurt Vonnegut's Tralfamadorians, which follow the A theory of time, where they mm -hmm. say in the at the beginning, human beings uh, appear as a, as a baby at one end and then an old person at the other. But in between, they look like a long snake where they, <laughs> where they slowly grow up and then become... Well, uh -huh. he was always good at this kind of thing where they slowly grow yeah. up and have multiple legs in between that are constantly moving like a centipede. 
Um, and uh, let me see. But their explanation of how they view time is B, is B theory, like a, like a pool, where you yeah. don't just say the past is behind me. It's like the past is actually over there to the right of me. Mm-hmm. And the future is, is, is over here to the left of me. And from mm-hmm. the left of me, I could go over there and then move over there to the past and then back mm-hmm. again. And it would right. be it would be considered f- five dimensional space. Right. It's more like all of them, all the times are pooled at once. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that would say a lot metaphysically about uh, whether or not the things that we do are um, destined to happen. Well, here's the thing. The movie kind of implies that it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. There are two things in the movie that occur um, where we know that the aliens know the future. They've, they've seen it, right? Mm-hmm. There is a subplot in the movie in which they are going to kill the aliens. They bring a bomb in there. They're going to destroy the aliens. Right. One of the aliens remains to impart a message to the Amy Adams character. And we know that these aliens already know what's going to happen. And yet the alien stays anyway. Yeah. The other part of that is that Amy Adams now knows that she is going to marry the Jeremy Renner, Renner character. They are going to have a child together. And, and that, that child, child is, is going, going to, to die, die. die very young. But she continues to do that, even with the knowledge that she already knows that that is what's going to happen. Right. They don't ask whether or not they're powerless to do anything about it. But everything that is going to occur in a relationship with Jeremy Renner, she sees. Right. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that she sees it and what she sees in the future isn't like oh my gosh she sees it as she knows what's going to happen because her future self already knows what's going to happen right Mm -hmm. this is what's going to happen despite the fact that charity knows what the future is going to be and i think that the aliens are kind of locked into that cycle too seeing the future we can't change it we now just know about it but is this a great Mm -hmm. gift or is it a horrible gift it sounds like a horrible gift but Mm. they're doing it because they need their help we they need our help later on aha (laughs) but here's the thing Time travel paradox. They need our help in the future, but they must have already known that they come here prior to our needing, their needing our help. Exactly. So they go they're they're going on something that they already know that they're predestined to go to Mm -hmm. there is no breaking the flow of time right it's not like she can travel back and change the things that happened to save her daughter's life or prevent the explosion from having that kills is it costello it kills costello yes um so their perception of time is such that time is fixed and that they just know about it right yeah let's say that you know everything that's going to go happen to your life up until the day you die you know everything that's going to happen but as you proceed forward everything happens exactly the way it's going to no matter what you do though exactly the way you see it and you the and you have you are armed with the knowledge of everything that's going to happen might take a little bit of the surprise out of it but it also means you can... that you could I've, I've had we've had this conversation before it mm-hmm. also means that if you know the exact moment of your death that you'll survive everything else in between so that exactly. means you can go cliff diving and something will stop you from dying right before you fall off of Mount Everest. <laughs> Something will come along and woo and then save or your life. Or you'll be prevented from ever going f- fulfilling that plan. Like fine I'll just jump off this cliff and I, I know I won't and die And someone here. will come up and be like what are you doing? I can't you breathe up get... here either but what are you doing? Yeah exactly. The difference is is that you now know you all you saw that happening. You already saw you trying to do all these things and all the things that come in to prevent you from doing the things. It is a it is a set flow it is a set the series of events is set there's nothing that they can do to change it mm-hmm. if they have this perception of time however 
However, when did this start, right? And now we're going to have to kind of go into the biology of these aliens because right. they appear to be doing this free of technology, okay? It is hardwired in them to the point in which as Amy Adams, a creature that is not the same species as them, begins to learn their language, she develops this same form of being able to see um and she gives it to the world time. too. Huh? She gives it to yeah. the world too and she gives it to the other leader was it am I uh, I'm going to say Chang but uh, I can't yeah I can't remember his name. Right. Um and uh he after she tells him information that she couldn't possibly know years later he comes and gives her that information so that she can uh-huh. give it back to herself just like just like um the guy in Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse 5. Mhm. Right. Yeah. He gives that information to her so that she can pass it along to him and save the so world. Here's the question, and we're going to start talking about the sap- the Saper Wolf Wharf hypothesis. Oh, sure. Which is a hypothesis of linguistic relativity, mm-hmm. and basically, it is a principle that claims that the structure of a language affects its speaker's worldview or cognition, and thus people. Um, the way they perceive things is relative to their spoken language or to the language that they utilize. In the movie, as she starts reading more and more of these, I can't remember what they're called. Logograms? No, logograms, uh, yes. Logograms. As she's learning more, she is learning their language, right? Through the very basic stuff. And she's starting to learn more and more and more and more. And as she learns more, she begins to develop a different set of perceptions. Their Absolutely. set of perceptions in which she can now, you know, travel through time, see see time differently. So I actually found a um, an article on the APS Association for Psychological Science from 2015. I know some people might uh, think that this is old. Now we need a new paper. But this is the <laughs> one that I found that wasn't blocked by a friggin paywall. Mm-hmm. So I'll only read the abstract, but it's called mm-hmm. Two Languages, Two Minds, Flexible Cognitive Processing Driven by Language of Operation. So if anybody mm-hmm. wants to go and actually read the full thing, just put in that and PDF and it will bring up the non-blocked one. Um, mm-hmm. So the abstract says people make sense of objects and events around them by classifying them to, into identifiable categories. That's uh, right. The extent to which language affects this process has been the focus of long-standing debate. Mm-hmm. To do different, uh, to do uh, do different languages cause their speakers to behave differently. Here we show that affluent German-English bilinguals categorize motion events according to the grammatical constraints of the language in which they operate. First, mm-hmm. as predicted from the cross-linguistic differences in motion encoding, bilingual participants functioning in German testing context prefer to match events on the basis of motion completion mm-hmm. to a greater extent than do, bili- do bilingual participants in an English context. Second, when bilingual participants experience verbal interference in English, their, cog- their characterization behavior is congruent with that predicted for Germans. And when bil- bilingual participants experience verbal interference in German, their characterization becomes congruent with that predicted for English. So it's just a small example of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. These findings show that the language ex- ex- uh, effects on cognition are context-bound and transient, revealing unprecedented levels of malleability in human cognition. And then I found another article that had a bunch of examples of this. Did you have anything you wanted to say? No, no. Here's I, There There have been a lot of study in regards to this type of hypothesis. Um, one of the ones that I find really interesting is color terminology. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, I got one right here, an example of it. Go for it. In Russian, there are multiple words for differing shades of blue. 
Uh, would having a word for light blue and another for dark blue lead Russian speakers to think of two different colors? Possibly. Berner says that the, that this could be compared to red, pink, red and pink in English, which are considered different colors, even though pink is merely a light shade of red. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, one of the things that they, they've observed through historical writings and writings in general is there is odd word choice for the colors that are described in ancient texts and ancient writing um, from Greeks, uh, from ancient Greeks to um, original Hebrew texts of the Bible when it comes to specifically the color blue. The color blue is never mentioned in any of the texts, even when it's describing something that's blue. Like even like the sky? Yeah, like water. They'll say wine. They'll always, one of the bigger ones was a wine dark sea or or things like that. Blue never So appears. did they have blue wine or did blue no. just not exist? <laughs> the idea is, is that while we they could see the color blue, the most predominant color that was blue would be the sky, right? Mm-hmm. But they didn't perceive the sky as having a color. They perceived it as being the sky. That's oh, so the, the word sky. for sky was blue. No, kind, they no, just no, didn't no, what have I mean is, yeah. When you said sky, they would. The idea was this entire thing. Was it firmament? Actually, now you're you're bringing me back to my class in in Jewish theology. Right. So right. I believe firmament, sky, and 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 maybe even what you're talking about all meant the same thing. Mm-hmm. I'll have to look now that most, one up. So don't quote me on it. Now they're still <laughs> saying that color terminology is still based on physical, biological universals. Right. Red is red. Blue is blue. Green is green. Brown is brown. And that language does not enter into it but they may have had a thing where at some point there was no language for blue that it just wasn't present there are lots of other colors that that people would use but for whatever reason just the simple color of blue wasn't something that appeared now there is another thing blue isn't that predominant you'll see it in some species of birds some butterflies maybe flowers maybe a couple bugs have some blue in it there's no blue food there is no naturally blue food Uh, blueberries jason no no no. blueberries are purple but purple isn't a real <laughs> color. You hallucinate it. That's right. You are hallucinating purple. I thought there was a blue food. I can't. I'm trying to think of it. I think I, I looked that up and then I can't. Not one that isn't artificially colored. Yeah. Uh, so this on the same track here. Uh, if there isn't a word uh, and attached meaning to something, can speakers experience it? The Danny of New England, uh, New England, New Guinea character. See what I just did? Actually, that's an example of it. Yeah, yeah. I see the word mm-hmm. new and immediately think New England yeah. instead of because <laughs> you live there. Yeah. Well, yeah. But, I mean, yeah. but that, I think that's a good example of it. I so new, uh, of New Guinea characterize colors as dark, which mean which includes blue and green and light, which includes yellow and red. Some stuff say that people don't actually see the color unless there's a word for it. But other studies have found that speakers of the Danny language can see the reference between yellow and red despite only having one word for them. So what is this study that they're pointing to? There's actually a hyperlink don't know. here. Oh, don't know. Daily Mail, come on. I just want to see the article. All right, never mm-hmm. mind. But blue and black, it, this this specific link is talking about. Right. Uh, oh, so it's that, this... it, it's that uh, the dress. Remember the dress? Yeah, remember everyone, the dress, where everyone said it's blue and what is it, black, what is it, black and white? I saw it as dark blue and white. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know how you saw it. Did you see it? I as... saw it as dark blue and white as well. Yeah. But other people were seeing it as different colors. No, you saw it as blue and white. I saw it as black and... Did you see it as black and gold? Yeah. Oh, I didn't see that. I saw it as blue and white. Yeah, yeah. A professor was actually pointing it out in lab class. Mm-hmm. And it was a, it was a long... She showed, she showed all of us the dress. And I said... I, and they said, how many people here see a white and blue dress? Was it white and blue? It was... I don't know what the actual color of it was. Well, it took it took her showing the the original tweeter showing the dress on a different background before people understood that the dress was actually white and blue. Oh, okay. Right? Uh, hmm. But if you if you looked at the dress and saw those colors immediately, it actually I forgot what the implication was. Mhm. Now, you have to remember that when it comes to colors, our eyes will fool us all the time. Mm-hmm. You hallucinate They'll fool purple. Fool us all the time. You hallucinate <laughs> purple and um, you know, the same shade, uh, there's tons of optical illusions in which you could swear to God that that's white, but then they, when they put a different background behind it, it turns gray, and they haven't done anything to the color. It's just the way our eyes process color. Mm-hmm. Now, we're getting away from the subject. The idea is, is that language can um, influence biology, mm-hmm. basically. Perception first. The way we perceive the world can be dictated by our language. I think that there's maybe some truth to it but i think what overall what changes our perception is maybe cultural rather than linguistic right but they both inform in and shape each other though don't they true but the type of perception that we're talking about in this movie is our perception of time Mm -hmm. to the point in which you are given new abilities to be able to see it and i think that's impossible yeah, well, I mean, I guess I agree with you in the fact that we haven't seen it. No, in the, that's in true. the sense that it's not something that we've seen, but that would be a black swan fallacy. Just because you uh, haven't, you know, you know how yeah. it goes. Just because you haven't seen a black swan doesn't mean X, doesn't mean there are no black swans. Um, right. But I'm going to say, I'm going to say that uh, it is an interesting way of putting it. And, it's and an it's specifically inter- for a science fiction story. Yeah. I think that that is actually a very brilliant thing to think about. I think that when sure. the, the original short story author, Ted Chang, wrote this, he was, he was, he was actually very creatively thinking that your, the ling- your language would not only affect your culture, which is true, and your culture would affect your language, but it right. could it also affect your biology and your mm-hmm. perception of time. Well, I right. think that your it, it does actually affect your perception of reality. I think that's possible. Certainly. I like what I just did. Just that small example where I where I read I read New and said New England. Mm-hmm. Um, but is it changing my biology? Probably not directly. Because I would have to think that her ability to perceive time, I it makes it seem like our perception of time is so weak that all it cha- all it needs to take is a slight change in perception in order to gain all of these new abilities in order to travel through time and see see time play out. You know what I mean? It's kind of like I can understand that someone may change my perception of the world by something that they've said to me, mm-hmm. but in this instance it's the very nature of the language itself that gives her the ability to perceive time differently than how she would perceive it just normally, right? Because if it is that simple, I would hate I would have to think that eventually well this is our perception of yeah i'm gonna say though you're when you begin to learn another language however you do perceive other people and their and other cultures differently uh it will it does change your perception of of specific types of reality like the examples that i gave you um Mm -hmm. specifically with the language that i learned i i don't know if everybody knows this but i actually have a sister who is deaf Mm -hmm. um and when we were young 
We did not actually know that she was deaf until she was three years old, because this was back in 1984, when she was already three, almost four years old, that my parents just thought, oh, she's a willful child. Uh, so right. she brought my daughter, my, my daughter, my mother <laughs> brought my sister into a doctor's house, which used to be his office, because you used to be able to do that back then. I don't know if yeah. people still do. And uh, the doctor said, I think I might understand what the problem is and why your daughter's mm -hmm. acting so willful and right. he brought in his little old lady wife and said honey can you go bring me the pots and pans and my mother's mm -hmm. like what my mother's a nurse and she goes what are you yeah. doing and uh he grabs the pots and pans and he gets behind my sister and he bangs them together as hard as possible and my sister did not move and he said mm -hmm. ma'am your daughter is deaf or mostly deaf Right, right. So when she was young, she had learned to read lips so well, we'd never had to learn sign language. I actually didn't learn it till college. Mm -hmm. um, and it do, and while, while you, you do understand the language is similar, it is obviously spoken with the hands when you experience the culture, say going to Gallaudet University, which I did to visit her. She lived mm -hmm. there for years. The culture is insanely different. It is yes. loud. Everybody there is very, very loud. There is constant loud music. There is constant click clacking and, and crackly energy and, and people constantly mm -hmm. flailing and they have to move their faces. You can't you can't just move your hands. You actually some you have to speak, not speak, but move your lips with the words mm -hmm. in order for other people to even understand what you're doing. So if you say surprise, you actually have to make a surprised look on your face or forget. Right. You actually have to, you know, move your hand from your forehead out and say forget and and then shrug slightly as if you've forgotten. Mm -hmm. Because right. all of these emote a certain part of the language that uh, you don't get until you can actually speak it. Uh, mm -hmm. And their energy is very different. Their acceptance is different. And I have to say, they're more progressive. <laughs> <laughs> because they're people who live with disabilities. Right, um, right. So, yeah, that's that's one specific part of it mm -hmm. that I learned just from that one one language. Right. Mm -hmm. But my, my point being, do you think it's possible that learning a language in this instance in the, in the film would be able to change someone's perceptions to the point in which they gain new abilities, such as the perception of time and the ability to Of fifth dimensional it. time, you mean? Fifth dimensional time, exactly. Right. Um, Is that physically possible? Not that I know of. Not not that I know of either. Yeah. I think it's a great idea. I think it's a neat idea. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really neat idea. And I think it's well um, illustrated in the movie. And it's another clever trick of the movie. Yes, it is. That that if that what they are doing is essentially saying the biggest problem between all of these warring countries is that they have no universal language to speak to each other. And if they mm -hmm. all understood our perception of time, they would mm -hmm. probably start stop stop fighting and un unite under a common banner and it would be Star Trek world. <laughs> and get their shit together. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, anything else big? Um, not, not really. Uh, I no, mean, not I didn't, really. I honestly, from what they're, now what I'm, what I'm going to say is from what they give us for the movie, I mm. don't think, I don't think any of these ideas are bad. They are grounded in science. However, we don't have uh, evidence to support a lot of the conclusions that are made. But, right. uh, I don't really know what else to add. I enjoyed the movie. I think it's, I think it's not, it's, it's, it has a brilliant, brilliant uh, premise and it's a good plot and uh, right. the science is, the science is sound in the fact that it is grounded in ideas that we have but right. uh, as far as as far as saying can we do this no obviously not <laughs> but that's what's that's what's good about a lot of science fiction movies we can't do that right and you right. can't explain it either <laughs>
They don't overburden us with a whole lot of techno babble. The main thrust of this is the, is the communication between humans and aliens. It is not about the ship. It's not about how they got there. It's not about how old they are or what their biology is. It's about a completely alien culture trying to impart its language to another completely alien culture and how difficult and what 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 would we do in order to do in order to do that? And you know, th- they make a point in the movie that the generals are like, "Well, well, it's just a, why are they here? Are they going to go to war with us and all that stuff?" And she's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't even have a baseline of commonality in our languages yet. And they we do don't... make a point in the film when they explain that we we decide to use human actors before this mm. movie screen because that's how Americans want to perceive this, right? Mm. And that's that's another extra quirk of the film is that we have, um, he's, they say this person is walking and then they show the mm-hmm. words and he's holding it just as if we're watching a silent yeah. film. And right. th- because that's very American. Film is very American. However, if we talk to, what was it? Uh, was it Japan? I think so, yeah. They are using a Mahjong set to teach mm-hmm. to teach the aliens how to how to communicate with them, which is something mm-hmm. that is very culturally them. Yes. And imparts the difference between the culture of Japan and the culture of ours, because in one in one instance, they tell, do they tell her, give weapon or give hammer? Yeah. And then they like tell that. the other ones, give weapon. Mm-hmm. And we're like, oh yeah. shit, you know. <laughs> like, what does he even mean when really it's give gift or give language wasn't it or, or give tool give tool yeah yes yeah because to them a tool is a tool they understand the concept of tool but they don't know the differentiations between what those tools mean to us culturally yeah there's a big difference between the tool that is a gun and the tool that is a hammer and the tool that is a scalpel mm-hmm. because all of those have cultural I can hammer nails with my gun very specific <laughs> meanings to us right mm-hmm. so yeah i I don't have anything wrong. I love the movie. I think it's great, but we're here for the science. Right. So. Wonderful science. In your opinion, what grade are you going to give Arrival? All right. We've talked a little bit. Jason, I know I said before I wanted to give it a, an, an A minus, like Contagion, yeah. just be specifically because I love this section of science, even though I've always been bad at math and I need the dummy explanation. At this point, I'll give it a B plus. Okay. Because it's okay. it's not meant to kill you with the science and the time travel and the paradoxes. It's no. meant to say, just accept it. Mm-hmm. And it's based in this, 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 and this, even if we can't say, how do they have gravitons or, or manipulate space? in time you mm-hmm. could easily you and i could easily look it up just as we have and that explains how they could perceive time or how language right. could do this or how how you know how they could travel through space and time uh, right so in this one i like i like it because the science of the movie makes you want to understand what the fuck they're talking about so i'm gonna give yeah. it a b plus okay right. um i'm going to give it a c minus and the main reason I'm going to give it a C- minus is mainly because a lot of the stuff that they're talking about is very theoretical. I don't think that the Saper-Wolf um, hypothesis even comes close to covering the idea that language could impart new abilities um, just through language alone, which is what she did, which is what she develops and what she gives to the world. Um, watching this movie is like watching someone talk about a thought experiment out loud. It has its basis in. 
in and remember the primary focus of this is is the learning of a language from one alien species to another alien species Mm -hmm. and it feels very much like a thought experiment well we could learn each other's language well what happens if that other alien's language affects our perception and so they chose a very extreme end of perception the perception of time rather than our perception of who we are as a people or what our culture is or how to travel across the stars even that that would have just been because i think that we talked about this in independence day was that the theory of the theory of alien races that had come up uh, come up or a hypothesis of alien races is not that they would come for our our shit because they don't no. need our shit was that if no. they were to come to visit us it's because they believe that we could that our, our our meeting would be mutually beneficial if they were to help us advance our technology so if they gave us the mm-hmm. language and that imparted the ability to understand how we were able how they were able to travel across the stars and it was mm-hmm. just that like hey this yeah. is how we perceive space and time and if mm-hmm. you perceive it this way as well you can create a starship that will travel you won't know your future no. but you can create a starship that will travel to Alpha Centauri ultimately they days. were pursuing a symbiotic path yeah mutual aid yeah and so while I think that all of those things are great and I think that this is a great jumping off point to talk about this stuff like we very much did during this podcast there's not a whole lot of solid science in it we don't get any answers about what powers the ship how they're using gravity any of that stuff and like I said that is not the focal point of this movie okay but in regards to the way that she utilizes her profession to learn their language is very close to what a lot of linguists agree I did I watched uh, I watched actually a YouTube video of a linguist criticizing the film and she Mm -hmm. said well as far as that goes uh, that that's probably what I would do this is what we would do and I would probably I would probably tell the general he's stupid for coming to me and saying can you translate these these murmurings on a recording you idiot (laughs) exactly because he has is that she needs to perceive them too right because I don't that we concentrated on the written language they have a vocal language as well that is nothing approaching human or any other kind of animal except for maybe whales Mm -hmm. right Um, whale speech Mm. Um, yeah exactly Um, how are you I mean, launching into this, and this is one of the reasons why I like the film and why I'm giving it a a C grade, is because it does, if you're so inclined, it does get you to start talking about these things in other areas. For example, if she can start understanding these creatures, why isn't it we can't understand the the, the basic rudiments of language of creatures that live on this planet? That we know are intelligent and may have language, but we are absolutely, you know, we, we kind of insist they don't. They do, but it's not like ours. And it's not like someone can step forward and say, well, these chimps over here, they're saying this, these basic sentence structures, or this is what this call means. And there are some, there are some animals that have that. We understand what calls, certain calls mean. Mm-hmm. Ape, other apes have different... can actually yeah. speak sign language and communicate what's going on in their mm-hmm. own specific, well, do they and call And even it then it's disputed. Right. Even then it's disputed. They're saying, well, that's learned behavior. I mean, but our language is kind of a learned behavior. And, and if we, we are also language... apes. So yes. for them to say we're separate from them I I, frankly uh, other than the fact that there's (laughs) pre and post zygotic separation going 
back to what we were right. talking about. Uh, we're, I mean, <laughs> we're mostly, think, we're mostly, we're mo- we're not, but we're mostly chimp. <laughs> yeah. So I think that for the most part, what this movie is really great for is talking about this kind of stuff and finding out how do we do these things? How do we communicate with alien species? Is it possible that um, language can be a major driving force in our ability to perceive things? So um, that's why I'm giving it that grade. Okay. And that's it. Good job, Arrival. Yeah, I, I think mean, I think great job, Arrival. Yeah. Hey, hey. Addy. Yeah. We got to do this again. We got to take another movie and we got to lay it down on the slab. And there's a movie that you suggested that I think we absolutely must do because it's on a topic that hey. we have not covered on this show. I want to take a shit in this movie's mouth. <laughs> what movie would that be? The Core. Oh, boy, The Core. It's like Armageddon Underground. And it's awful. <laughs> I mean, some of it's okay, but nah, nah, nah. nah. The movie is the movie is the movie is fun so long as you don't start thinking about the science. So, if we lost the Earth's magnetic field, Jason, do you think that we would immediately incinerate in less than a few months? Let's find out next week, I guess. Ah, uh, so thank you, everybody, for joining us at the Cinetific Institute. I am podcast professor. Jason Harding. And I am podcast professor Atticus Blake. And please be sure to join us at the Institute again where we put the science in fiction. In. Jeez, <laughs> that's you your intro to me. I'm teaching you my language now. No. I learned your language a long time ago. Dick. Where we put the science in fiction. Where we put the science in fiction. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Okay. Cinetific is a Let Me Listen podcast production with Jason Harding and Atticus Blake. You can find more Let Me Listen podcasts at our website at lemmelistenpodcast.com. You can also find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and iTunes under Let Me Listen. Please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find us on Facebook, Pinterest, and Twitter. Cinetific is also a listener-supported podcast. If you would like to contribute just $1 a month to support this podcast, or any of the other podcasts that Lemmy Listen produces, please visit our page at Patreon. Just search for Lemmy Listen Podcasts. Or you can click the Patreon link on our website. And thanks for listening.